Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. On the line with us is Katrina Vanden Heuvel, the editorial director and publisher at The Nation magazine. TheNation.com is the website. Also writes a weekly column for The Washington Post. Katrina's Twitter handle is Katrina Nation or at The Nation. And uh, Katrina, welcome back to the program. And you've got a, this piece by Tariq Ali in uh, the current issue of The Nation, I believe it is is uh, absolutely brilliant. The war on terror, 20 years of bloodshed and delusion. I, you are such a, an astute observer of the political scene, not just in the United States, but around the world. I'm wondering your take on this apparent repudiation of stupid, unnecessary, lied us into kinds of wars and long-term occupations that we seem to be backing away from, but maybe not. You know, Tom, you know, the nation was founded in 1865 by abolitionists, and if there's one cross-thread throughout the history of the nation, it is the belief that military misadventures abroad, occupation of countries, we don't know their history, we have no right to remake their country, doesn't lead to a real democracy at home. And I think that on this 20th anniversary of 9-11, the ability to have a reckoning without vengeance, but a reckoning, a rethinking, a reimagining of our security and what we mean by security would be so vital because we have squandered resources in the search for security. And as I think Tariq Ali writes, you know, the blowback, the creation of more terrorists as a result of the global, quote, war on terrorism. We were at uh, a few, a couple miles from 9-11 on that criminal day, and we watched all day and tore up the magazine it was tearing up then and the ability to reconcile one's personal and political beliefs with balancing individual grief and anger at the attacks with a responsibility to be proportional just and seek a different outcome than what we engaged in so i think it's a moment We'll see President Biden, I think, was right to leave Afghanistan. I think we should take the military money that we would waste on Afghanistan in this coming time and use it for regional diplomacy, for assistance as best we can. But I think it's a moment, Tom, that we should not squander again. The thing that makes me absolutely crazy about this, Katrina, is that in 1848, I believe it was, James Polk told us that the Mexicans had attacked us. 
it was a lie, but it got us the Mexican-American War. In uh, 1896 or 1898, uh, you know, if you know, correct me, uh, but, but you know, just before yep. the turn of the century, it was uh, McKinley who told us yep. you know, uh, that we had been attacked, the USS Maine had been blown up in Havana Harbor when in fact it had just had a boiler uh, explosion. And that got us into the Spanish-American War that led to a 48-year occupation of the Philippines. You know, Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson. Oh, who was his uh, uh, secretary? No, of I mean, I'm thinking, you know, Vietnam is interesting because one of our longtime managing editors was Ernest Groening, who was governor of the Commonwealth of Alaska and then two term senator. He and Wayne Morse, those were the only two senators who voted, I believe it was 1965, against the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which right. was in essence what you are describing in previous incidents of our history. It was a mechanism, it was a lie to get America more involved in the war. And think of Iraq, Tom, how much time you've spent discussing how we, you know, president lied, people died. And I think that is the gravest sin uh, to commit against uh, but men But this, this is the, the, where I was going with this. What makes me crazy about this is that we're, we're doing all these 20, these 20 year anniversary retrospectives Yes. And none of them are looking at how we got into this. I mean, in Afghanistan, for example, the Taliban offered to arrest bin Laden. And George W. Bush was like, no, I want to have a war, uh, point one. You, and then, you know, Tom, I, I titled a column in the Post a week or so ago, let's look at how we got in, not got out. Exactly. How one gets out of a war is, you know, it, it, the footage was horrifying. But a year before, Tom, the national networks, and majority of Americans still get their news from the nightly networks, has spent about five minutes on Afghanistan. Hmm. And it just is, I think, media malpractice, as we've talked about. We need to look at how we get into wars to learn. So the ability to extricate, exit from Afghanistan, you know, it's, a, again, a measure, a marker. We have uh, several articles about what continues. The global war on terror is not over. The bases, 800 or so, U.S. bases around the world, policing the world. And, you know, I think the notion of indispensable nation, which Madeleine Albright coined, should be retired. I think we do better as a leader among many and would do a lot of good to get our own house in order. And I, I think there's a moment here now to think of a new kind of um, approach to the world. It's not isolationism, but it is approaching the world with restraint and humility, if we can bear that. Um, but I think it would lead to more security and it would be a better world if we cooperated and focused on human security, which, you know, is at stake in this next period, Tom, as you know, the 3.5 trillion. I mean, think of what is poured into the military. I gather Republicans are trying to add 25 billion to the National Defense Act, which is coming up. Mm -hmm. We should take those resources and invest in our people's security and well-being and not isolate ourselves from the world, but engage as a true partner. The Arnold Toynbee is said to have said, yeah. you know, when the last man who remembers the horrors of the last great war dies, the next great war becomes inevitable. It's like, you know, we glorify war. Um, I'm wondering if, and we seem to keep repeating these mistakes, but a large part of it, as you point out, is because we are this we are the empire, right? The world empire right now. Is there an example in the United Kingdom that we should be paying attention to and talking about? In the early 20th century, they basically decided to get out of the empire business and, you know, retreated to largely their little island. 
And you know, you're right about that, Tom, but I'll tell you, you know, because the anti-communist Cold War descended like an iron curtain so quickly, what was lost was Roosevelt's belief in the importance imperative of decolonization. One can be critical, mm. obviously, of certain things, but Churchill was not a decolonizer. So there was a battle then, but I do think there are lessons, good neighbor policy of Franklin Roosevelt in Central America, South America, was an important one to take a lesson from. And I think the four freedoms, the United Nations, however flawed, these are institutions that have some merit. The UN envoy to Afghanistan and Iraq, Lakhdar Brahimi, former president of Algeria, if we had listened to him, we would not be looking at what the Taliban is doing in Afghanistan right now, and we would have found a way to, I think, organize in a multinational way a different outcome. We have no right to go into countries, it seems to me, and remake their country, but if uh, there is negotiation and diplomacy at the key times, as you noted, we might not be in this place. I'm curious your thoughts on how China's Belt and Road program uh, is, you know, is this 21st century colonization? Are there positive or negative lessons for us to learn as we are rethinking the whole idea of foreign policy, uh, of our foreign policy uh, here in the United States? It, it's, a, it's a very, very important question. First of all, I hope we don't have a new Cold War with China. That seems folly. It won't help people here. Uh, it will contribute to military buildup. But the Belt, Belt and Road Initiative I think it's been very extractive. It's worth some reporting on how it resembles colonization. But there, you know, they have, China is in many countries, and I believe is into Afghanistan now in a yeah. substantial way. Yeah, and when I was I in South Sudan, I, they were all over. They were all over is the that place. Right? Yeah, I, I don't think they're loved, but that's not the mission here. But it is a, something to look at. I do think the idea that um, China and Russia are uh, clinking glasses watching us in Afghanistan is folly because Afghanistan's on the border. All these, you know, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and the drug smuggling and the poppy, you know, narcotic smuggling, this is not something that is going to lead to a stability. And I think there's real fear. But China is, with the Belt and Road Initiative, it's a very good question about the margin between colonization 21st century and contribution to the development of other countries' right. economics. And cooperation. And, and just yeah. to kind of close this, I, I love talking with you, Katrina. You're, I think of you as one of the great minds of our century. Please. And, uh, oh. Or of our era. What, what are your, your thoughts on, you know, on this 20th anniversary? What would you leave, leave our listeners with and our, our country with? If, you, know, as, as you, could. you know, the great historian Eric Foner wrote in the issue that we put to bed, immediately after 9-11, that, at, you know, times of crisis, the most patriotic act of all is the unyielding defense of civil liberties of dissent. I think that is an important lesson, criticizing government in wartime, which Barbara Lee, you know, we ha had an interview with her in our issue after 9-11 the week after, had security detail for weeks and months. I think it's important that people understand that war must be the very, very, very last alternative before every other means is exhausted, and why people are fearful of peace, which is not just the absence of war, but the absence of justice. I think the idea of peace is one that could be rehabilitated in terms of uh, our times. And 
I leave you with that. Powerful stuff. Katrina Vanden Heuvel, the editorial director and publisher of The Nation magazine, thenation.com. Katrina, thank you so much. It's great talking to you. Have a great afternoon. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Talk media for the sane among us. And yes, there are still some of us here. So there are actually some substantial differences between the Taliban, the Afghanistan Taliban, the group that has, you know, the Donald Trump signed what his defense secretary and his national security advisor referred to as surrender documents to back in uh, early 2020. There's a difference between the Taliban and ISIS or even K-ISIS, which is how they're identifying the ISIS group that has emerged in Afghanistan. The main difference is that the Taliban's ambitions are largely confined to Afghanistan. They want to be a regional force. They were, they, they were the government of Afghanistan before. They want to be the government of Afghanistan again. ISIS, on the other hand, wants to reestablish the entire caliphate across the Middle East, across northern Africa, across parts of southern Europe. And this is going to bring these two into conflict. I've got a whole video about this over at TomHartman.com. Check it out. Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz, what's up? Namaste, Guru. <laughs> Namaste, Chaz. Hey, first I got to give you a correction because I'm halfway between Olympia and Tacoma and just a couple hours north of you, but I wanted to give you my historical place in 9-11 20 years later, if I can do it uh, with composure. Sure. Tom, here we are, 20 years after 9-11, and 9-11 affected me profoundly. I was called early into my job as a journalist for a National Guard Public Affairs Office, then I was deployed to Operation Iraqi Freedom. And as a single dad, I had to see my child grow up in a world that doesn't make sense to him, doesn't make sense to me. And I really can't see how it makes sense to anybody, Tom. We've got a long way to go to get ourselves out of the cave. And at every turn, it seems like the religious fanatics are holding us back. If it's not Islamic fundamentalists, it's quote-unquote Christian fundamentalists. The Crusades are over. God never intended to hold us back from our potential. Tell fanatics to stop weaponizing God, Tom. Yeah. Well, you just did, Chaz, and I salute you for it. Which raises a whole other question, which is, where does religion end and cult begin? Yeah, well, ask the GOP. Well, that's, yeah, that's my point. I mean, these religious fanatics that are, you know, some of them are religious fanatics. Some of them are just hustlers exploiting religion. And You know, Tom, there's something I've wanted to say for a year, which is, look, you GOP fanatics, you look at the flag and you tell me which star on the flag you hate. There you go. There you go. Chaz, thank you. Thank you for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Case Against George W. Bush by Stephen C. Markoff, with a foreword by uh, Richard Clark. This is from the foreword. For some Americans, George W. Bush looks good by comparison to Donald Trump. In his post-presidency, Bush has devoted himself to worthy causes and acted in a bipartisan manner. 
The 43rd president should, however, be judged not by comparison to America's worst president, nor by what Bush may have done after leaving office. He should be evaluated for his actions in office, his nonfeasance, misfeasance, and malfeasance. This volume from Stephen Markoff provides the evidence for such an evaluation. You can judge for yourself. For me, there is little doubt. I unfortunately witnessed Bush and his administration make many of their most cataclysmic decisions. I was in the room when some of them occurred. When in December 2000, the Supreme Court of the United States decided on a five to four vote that George W. Bush would become the 43rd president, I was the special assistant to the president for national security and national coordinator for security and counterterrorism for President William J. Clinton. I anticipated leaving the White House on January 20th, 2001, when the Clinton presidency ended. However, I was asked by the incoming administration to stay on for an unspecified period because, as it was explained to me, there was no one on Bush's incoming team who knew much about terrorism or who wanted my job. Departing Clinton administration officials stressed to the newly arriving Bush team and to Bush himself the importance and urgency of dealing with the al-Qaeda terrorist threat. Indeed, the Clinton administration had developed an extensive series of further steps to combat al-Qaeda that it would have taken had it continued in office, or indeed had Vice President Al Gore assumed office in 2001. Within days of Bush's inauguration, I asked for an urgent meeting at the cabinet level to review both the threat and the plan to ratchet up the measures against al-Qaeda. No such meeting occurred until a week before 9-11, and that meeting was inconclusive. From January 2001 through the second week in September, Bush personally received frequent intelligence warnings that al-Qaeda posed an imminent threat. He convened no meetings to address the issue. His inner circle of national security advisors did nothing, despite frequent urgings by the CIA director and the national coordinator, including such vivid imagery as our asking and writing that they consider a near future in which there would be hundreds of dead bodies in the streets of America. Instead, they focused on Iraq and the regime of Saddam Hussein. Bush's nonfeasance cost American lives. Following the deaths of over 3,000 innocent civilians on 9-11, the Bush administration attempted to tie the al-Qaeda attack to Iraq, which had nothing to do with it. Despite CIA and FBI analyses that reiterated Iraq's non-involvement, the Bush administration almost immediately followed the 9-11 attack by beginning to make plans to invade Iraq. Senior Bush officials spoke privately of the need to demonstrate our strength in the wake of the 9-11 attack, show our might by destroying the largest army in the Middle East, and thereby also prove our willingness to take U.S. military casualties to achieve our ends. Prior to 9-11, foreign terrorists who had attacked Americans had been successfully sought out throughout the world and arrested by U.S. law enforcement authorities assisted by the intelligence community. Many terrorists had been returned to U.S. territory, given their Miranda rights, provided with counsel, tried in our civilian criminal courts, convicted, sentenced, and incarcerated in maximum security prison cells. One, tried by the Commonwealth of Virginia, was executed. Despite this record, the Bush administration abandoned criminal process and established its own extrajudicial system for dealing with terrorists post 
That new system used techniques that any objective observer would judge were torture. Perhaps the most well-known torture technique was the procedure known as waterboarding. The United States government had tried World War II Japanese military personnel for using the exact same technique. They were found guilty, and some were executed by hanging. The United States Senate's Committee on Intelligence conducted the most extensive oversight and investigation and examination in its history on the issue of torture during the Bush administration. That voluminous study concluded that torture was employed and that it had not, despite administration claims to the contrary, uniquely revealed information that had prevented terrorist attacks. To the contrary, it showed that tortured prisoners, unable to satisfy their interrogators with information that the terrorists did not know, instead guessed at what kind of story would stop the torture and then fabricated information of the kind they thought their prosecutors wanted to hear. Bush was not only aware of the torture, he approved it. His role in giving authorization for such acts can rightly be considered criminal malfeasance, as should his orders to invade Iraq. Among the many justifications the Bush administration continued considered for their invasion and occupation of Iraq, they chose finally to make the alleged weapons of mass destruction existence their chief complaint. The book, The Case Against George W. Bush by Stephen C. Markoff. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And welcome back. On the line with us is uh, our buddy Dean Obadala, host of the Dean Obadala Show, weekdays 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Progress, right here on Channel 127. He's a columnist for the Daily Beast, Dean, of, uh, among others. Uh, DeanofRadio.com is his website. You can tweet him at Dean Obadala or at SXM Progress. And Dean, you uh, wrote just this absolutely extraordinary piece, and I'm not even going to... Uh, do the setup for you. I mean, I just let me toss it to you. You went to sleep on sure. September 10th. F finish the finish the thought. Sure. Uh, well, it's a sort of summing up my life. On September 10th, I went to sleep a white guy. September 11th, I woke up an Arab. And while that is overly simplistic, it really is the, the core of my being as, a, as an American here. You know, I went Pre-9-11, I was really raised to be a white guy. No exaggeration. My dad's Palestinian. My mom, though, was Italian-American, born here in the States. And pre-9-11, while I knew my heritage on my dad's side was Arab, I didn't have Arab friends. I've often joked all my friends pre-9-11 were named like Monica and Chandler and Joey. You know, but then society changed. And in the world post-9-11, it became clear to me that I was now a minority, that my white card, my white privilege at least part of it was being taken away by society. And what I mean by that is white people never have to suffer the, for the worst in your community. 
Nobody asked white people to answer for the worst white people. There were no politicians openly demonizing white people because of few extremists in your community. That happens to minorities all the time, black, brown, Muslim, whoever we are. It's the world we live in. It was a new world for me. I was not used to it. It was something I had to navigate and deal with. And at times in the beginning, I wanted to remain a white person, to be blunt with you, because while I didn't know what it was like to be a minority, instinctively I knew it would be more challenging. But then in time, I began to embrace my minority status, and now I'm unapologetically a minority. I view the news of the world through the prism of being a minority, not being part of the white majority any longer. So that is my story. I know in, in post 9 11, 20 years, there's so much media coverage of different voices. And I appreciate you including this in the conversation as well, because my story is not unbelievably unique, unique to Arab Americans who were born and raised here, who actually thought they were just typical white people. After 9 11, it was made very clear to them by society they were not. Yeah, and, and in fact, typical Americans, in quotes, or regular Americans, in quotes, is, is kind of code for white people, generally speaking. And how has this experience, we're talking with Dean Obadala, uh, host of the Dean Obadala Show here on SiriusXM, how has this experience changed your understanding of other minority groups, of gender minority groups or other racial minority groups or religious minority groups? Uh, that's a great question. And because on some level, I just want to say, you know, we hear in America that race is a social construct. And I'm the living manifestation of that. My skin color is the same as it was pre-9-11. It was the way I was treated, the way my community, more importantly, was treated. The fact that I had death threats directed at me post-9-11 because of my faith being Muslim and my heritage, white people don't have that. The result is in the post 9-11 world, as I increasingly began to embrace my minority status, is that I feel a kinship to other minorities. It's not like pre-9-11, I was still a liberal, but it was more intellectual connection. I would hear about demonization of a minority group or discrimination, and intellectually I, I would respond. Now it's visceral, because I know the pain firsthand, what they're going through when politicians demonize other minority groups. I know the pain they're feeling when they're being openly discriminated against or there's bigots on Fox News or right-wing media demonizing their community for political gain or to sell books and to make money from it because that's happened in my community. So now I'm a much better ally with other minorities because we're in this together. You know, yeah. I have skin in the game because I have felt the pain and the sting of bigotry firsthand and my community has as well. Do you think America has learned a lesson from this, I, I, you know, I realize that, that it's almost kind of a trite and cliched question, but, right. but, but I think that there's a, uh, you know, my, my, the rant that I was doing before uh, about Donald Trump uh, kind of leading our country toward authoritarianism and neo-fascism, and as a consequence of his example for four years, we've got people blowing up on airplanes, I, you know, I mean, explode, you know, going after flight attendants, right, and, right, sure. and, and uh, we've got people, uh, you know, uh, yelling at women uh, for, you know, uh, this, this story out of Colorado, you know, where the uh, young women on the beach, you know, oh, you're wearing a bikini, how dare you, this is America, you know, like, you should be in a burqa or something. Um, I, you know, you've got, you know, uh, vigilante groups, you've got an entire state, Texas, that just legally embraced vigilantism or vigilanteism, I guess is how you say sure. it. Um, and, and it's like, it, 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 it seems to me that when you look at countries, you see that 
I, and, and this is true of companies, by the way. I've noticed this over the years, running companies and, and interacting with other companies. And it's true of families that basically the leadership, the parent figures, the, the leadership of the company, the, the mom and dad in the family, the head of government, the head of state, that they establish the tone, whether it's Duterte killing people in the Philippines, uh, Bolsonaro, you know, his son apparently is running these militias where they're going around beating up and killing his political opponents and intimidating people. Um, this is happening, you know, around the world in countries that are flipping to authoritarianism. Um, George W. Bush, uh, he wasn't the worst fearmonger on this. He, he, you know, he gave some good lip service to there are good Muslims out there and that kind of stuff. But I don't think that sure. I, I don't think he did anything close to what he could have done to to dial this back. But we went through this and 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 it was amplified and hysterialized, you know, by the right uh, for the better part of a decade. And now we've got it again as a consequence of Trump. Only it's being largely directed toward black people and and uh, and Hispanic people, um, and. And my hope is that Joe Biden, being a decent and compassionate person, maybe the perfect person at this moment, or one of them, um, is able to pull us back from that precipice, is able to kind of undivide America, whether it's the, 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 the Muslim Christian division, you know, and, or Arab uh, white person division that you're talking about, or whether it's other, other, all these other divisions. What are your thoughts on all that? I don't think it's possible for Joe Biden to turn the clock back and what Donald Trump has unleashed. What Donald Trump has done, he didn't make his base hate Muslims or any kind of bigotry that they believe in. He, Donald Trump just let his base be exactly who they always wanted to be. Mm. Tom, this is who they are. They had a hide it for years and decades. The society said it was no longer acceptable to say, I don't want any more Muslims in this country like Trump did. And 66% of GOP primary voters in 2016 agreed with that. He didn't make them like that. Finally, there is someone th saying what I think. He didn't make them. No, I, I, I get that, told, Dean, but, but right. they are making I, another generation like that. There's a huge component of evangelism here, whether it's explicit and overt or whether it's simply being in the stew, you know, whether it's just cultural exposure to bigotry. Look, I don't know. All I can tell you is everything we're seeing is deeply alarming. 20 years ago, we said you're either with us or you're with the terrorist. 20 years later, the GOP is saying literally you're either with terrorist Trump or you're out of the GOP. That's how far that party has come. Yeah. It is now a party who they have been Republicans who demonized the Muslim community in the name of fighting terrorism, who made our lives a living hell. Spike and hate crimes are mosques to attack terrorist plots against us. These same Republicans are now defending the January 6th terrorist attack and the terrorist by name and celebrating Donald Trump, the man who incited the act of domestic terrorism on January 6th. Donald Trump was the Osama bin Laden of January 6th. The fact that he walks free every day and spews the same lie that radicalized people to attack us on January 6th, every day he's out, it's one day less our nation is safe. It's one day more we go down that path to a violence, pockets of violence, potentially more than pockets. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Dean, thank you. Uh, you're, thank you, my friend. Thanks, Tom. Great such, to see you. Such a contribution. Great, great seeing you too, Dean. Thank you again. The Dean Obadala Show, right here on Sirius XM, channel 127, The Progress Channel, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, every, you know, five days a week. Check it out. Thomas in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Thomas, what's on your mind today? 
Hi, Tom. How are you today, sir? I'm well. How about you? Well, I'm doing well. Uh, I'm going to ask a question. Considering what the Supreme Court did a couple of weeks ago in favor of the voter suppression restriction law, mm-hmm. uh, and the likelihood of uh, John Lewis Act, the Voting Rights Act, HB1, not getting passed, what can we do? And wasn't it you that called the Ameri- the, uh, the Republican Party the American Taliban? Um, I, I may have at various times, I'm not sure. But uh, are you asking that question rhetorically or are you offering a solution? What can we do? Uh, what can be done? Well, the first one is uh, rhetorically because I don't know what we can do. Yeah, I, what I think we have to, I, I, I don't see, you know, there's two things. One is kind of out of our hands, and that is, uh, you know, the, the Biden administration and the Justice Department really using the power of public persuasion, using the backroom power to get uh, Mansion and Cinema in line, doing away with the filibuster, stuff like that. Um, we can influence that at a certain level by calling your members of the United States Senate. Uh, the switchboard number is 202-224-3121. And you can just ask for your senator. If you're not sure who your two senators are, you can tell them what state you're from and they'll tell you and they'll connect you. Um, So, you know, end the filibuster. Let's get some stuff done here. Um, uh, You know, number one. And number two, I think that we have to make sure that everybody we know is registered to vote. We need need to make sure that everybody we know who's, you know, aligned with our values and our our worldview that, that, you know, a month before the election, weeks before the election, you double check to make sure that you're still registered to vote. Because if you've got a Republican secretary of state or Republican controlled state, they may well be, you know, making it impossible to vote or difficult to vote. And we need to show up in absolutely overwhelming numbers. And I suspect, frankly, that that may be exactly what's going to happen next year, Thomas. I, I really I really think that's possible. Thomas, thank you for the call. Dave in Albany, New York. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind? Hey, I'm following up on the earlier discussion about the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's interesting about it is it was we ended up with the Philippines as a result of the Spanish-American War. And the immediate response of the Americans upon occupying the Philippines was that we had to Christianize the country. You're right. Because our little our brown little there did not have the benefit of Christianity. Now, the irony was it was a heavily Catholic country because it had been a Spanish colony prior to our occupation. But beyond that, the Philippines was where the Americans, to the best of my knowledge, first started using waterboarding. You're right. And waterboarding was, was widely used in the Philippines as, as, a, as a mechanism in trying to suppress the rebellion by the Filipinos against the illegal American occupation and colonization of the country. And let's not forget that we were lied into the Spanish-American War by McKinley in 1898, I believe it was, when he said that the USS Maine was blown up in in the harbor in Cuba by by the Spanish, when in fact its boiler exploded. It was just a a normal thing, and he knew that. And, and uh, the William Randolph Hearst, you know, he reached out to Frederick Remington and said, get me the photos and I'll give you the war. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure it was Frederick Remington. Yeah. Thank you for the call. Cliff in Santa Clarita, California. Hey, Cliff, what's on your mind today? Morning, Tom. I feel compelled to share this. Uh, a week or two ago, you were having a discussion with a caller about Building 7 on 9-11. Mm-hmm. And your position was what you said based on what you've read. Uh, my question is, haven't you seen the video 
Um, there's a 47-story building that came down in 6.6 seconds, just like you've seen before, other controlled demolitions. The whole building pancaked to the ground in six and a half seconds. Larry Silverstein, the, uh, I think his name's Larry, the leaseholder, was caught on tape saying we decided to pull the building. Um, you know sort what that of. means. Yeah, I've okay. seen that. And I've seen I've I've seen probably a dozen of those videos, Cliff, over the years. Okay. And uh, you know, I am I am still of the opinion that the official story that they they had tens of thousands of gallons of diesel fuel for their emergency generators stored on their roof, and that right. flaming debris from one of the other buildings hit that, caught it on fire, that that started spreading down through the elevator chutes in the in the middle. That the way that those okay. buildings are built, if you take out those steel struts in the center, the buildings will implode. And that it okay. didn't take six and a half seconds. It took it took you know several minutes before it got to that point. And mm. uh, you know I'm I'm still buying the official okay. story. <laughs> you know, I but, okay. but I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm not an expert. I wasn't there. I didn't look at it. But I right. you know I think that you know the the the, the, the regardless of what you know of, of whether my story or your story is the correct story on Building Seven. Uh, I, you okay. know, I, I think the, the bigger question right now is how did America react to 9-11? Right. Can, can I mention one other thing, Tom, the you Pentagon? Okay, because there's a video on, there's a documentary video on YouTube that's still up there called In Plain Sight. Plain meaning airplane, P-L-A-N-E. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and if you haven't seen this, Tom, it's, it's, it's unmistakable. The aftermath of the Pentagon, they show the hole in the Pentagon, uh, like a yeah. Scud missile hole. It was 16 feet wide, okay? Tip, uh, uh, wingtip to wingtip, that plane was 120 feet wide. But the, the point is, Tom, after a plane crashes, there's debris everywhere, right? But when you look at the Pentagon, you look at the video, there's no fuselage, no tail section, no wing section, no luggage, no people, no anything. There's yeah, it was largely aspects. vaporized. I mean, airplanes are made out of aluminum. Aluminum burns. I know, Tom, but but there's still going to be wreckage. And, and I can show you videos on, on YouTube, Cliff, that, that prove that Bill Clinton unzips his human suit every night, and he's a lizard person. Uh, that's a little stretch, Tom. I, uh, here's what I'm saying. It's a 16-foot hole wide. Yeah, which is, wide which, is, which is about the diameter of the fuselage of a jet airplane. And the know, wings would shear no... off and burn. Of course. Okay, how about, uh, wouldn't it be a hazmat situation? Wouldn't there be a fire if there's 10,000 gallons of jet fuel? There would have been a fire burning for hours. There was no fire, Tom. They showed a picture of a stool with an open book. The pages weren't even, the second yeah. story right where that hole was, there's a, there's a book that hasn't even been burned, Cliff, I can't. There was no fire. Yeah. There was no fire, Tom. Okay, so who you know sent the missile, fires. Cliff? Huh? Who oh, sent I don't the have those answers, Tom. I have there's right. Well, this is now it's, it's like we're trying. This is like trying to debate ivermectin with somebody, Cliff. You know, it, it, we're, we're, we're really? debating stuff we saw on the internet. It's like I'm just I'm not. I, you know, I'm I'm frankly way beyond that. Right, it, 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 Cliff. I got to run, but thank you for the call. I'm just I'm just way beyond it. I, I you know. Okay, maybe there's some questions. I don't think so, frankly. I don't think there's any questions about this, but you know, if you want to have questions, but still, the, in my mind, the issue is, you know, how did we allow George W. Bush to lie us into two wars as a consequence of this? You're listening to Tom Hartman.
book today is The America Syndrome, Apocalypse, War, and Our Call to Greatness by Betsy Hartman. No relation. The, this is from the introduction, End Times and Endless War. According to opinion polls, a staggering percentage of Americans accept that the world will end in a battle in Armageddon. In a 2010 Pew poll, 41% of respondents said they expect Jesus Christ to return to the earth by 2050. Two years later, a Reuters poll found that over one-fifth of the American population believe the end of the world will happen in their lifetime, as compared to 6% in France, 7% in Belgium, and 8% in Great Britain. Another recent poll by the Public Religion Research Institute reported that 49% of Americans think that natural disasters are a sign of the end times. In the months before the purported December 2, 2012 Mayan apocalypse, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, received so many inquiries from children and adults terrified that a rogue planet might crash into the Earth or that the sun might explode that it set up a special web page to allay their fears. The page received over 4.5 million views. On December 22, NASA posted a video it had made in advance why the world didn't end yesterday. Of all the intertwining reasons for our apocalyptic disposition, reasons I explore in this book, the one that stands out most starkly is our acceptance of the necessity and inevitability of war. In the same 2010 Pew study, six out of ten Americans saw another world war as definite or probable by 2050. This expectation of war isn't surprising given that Americans' apocalyptic images and beliefs are derived mainly from Christianity, especially the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament, which above all is about the grotesque violence and crowning glories of war. The book of Revelation is wartime literature. Its author, John, is thought to have been deeply affected by the Roman army's attacks on Judea and its siege and sacking of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. John himself was banished to the Greek island of Patmos by Roman rulers around 95. In John's macabre vision of the end times, a fourth of the earth is wiped out, a third of the trees, green grass, and sea creatures are extinguished, and a third of the world's water is poisoned. There are terrible earthquakes, fires, and plagues. Four demons kill a third of all humankind. The whore of Babylon, a symbol of evil and carnal lust, is assaulted by the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, which strips her naked, eats her flesh, and burns her with fire. Toward the end of the book of Revelation, the Savior, with eyes like a flame of fire, faithful and true, rides out on a white horse to lead the armies of heaven in battle. He is, quote, clothed with the vestiture dripping in blood, end quote, and on him are written the words, quote, King of kings and Lord of lords, end quote. He holds a sword in his mouth to smite the nations so that he can preside over them with a rod of iron and the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. In the final judgment, the dead are brought back to life, but those judged to be sinners by their deeds are thrown, along with the devil and death of itself, into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, where they meet the second death of eternal suffering. Fortunate, then, are those who are judged worthy to live on in the New Jerusalem, a city with streets of gold, gates of pearls, and walls inlaid with gems. There is no need for the sun or moon, since God and the Lamb are the light, and from their throne flows the pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, that nourishes the fruits of the tree of life. This promise of a new Jerusalem for the elect and the cataclysmic violence against people and nature necessary to achieve that goal has made the book of Revelation an ideological tool of conquest and empire from the Crusades onwards. You don't have to be a Christian to be susceptible to John's logic that the perfect end, the new Jerusalem, justifies a bloody means. Despite the official separation of church and state, 
religious axioms thread through the fabric of American political culture. Historian Robert Bella coined the term civil religion to describe the religious orientation that the great majority of Americans share. That a higher authority guides human affairs. That American history follows a providential path. That Americans are special and exceptional. A chosen people obliged to carry out God's will or else suffer dire consequences are widely held to be self-evident truths. So too is the belief that war is divinely justified. The Civil War marked a watershed in the evolution of our civil religion. As it metastasized into a total war that targeted civilian populations as well as soldiers, estimates of the war deaths have recently been revised upwards to three quarters of a million people. Leaders and clergy on both sides invoked divine authority to justify that slaughter. Quote, many saw in the unprecedented destruction of lives and property something mystical taking place, writes historian Harry Stout, what we might today call the birthing of a fully functional, truly national American civil religion. Patriotism became a sacred duty, as important as adherence to a traditional faith, maybe more so. Civil war deaths created a republic of suffering in which sacrifice and the state became inextricably intertwined. World War I brought about a major reaffirmation of this civil religion. The nation's turn away from isolationism to global intervention was accompanied by hyperbole about its starring role as world redeemer in a continuing war between good and evil around the globe. President Woodrow Wilson complained, the world must be made safe for democracy. The book, The America Syndrome by Betsy Hartman. witnessing today in America the symptoms, in my opinion, of a culture going through the early stages of transition from a pluralistic democracy to violent authoritarianism. And this is something that when you look at the history of other countries where this has happened, goes from the top down. This really started with Donald Trump, which raises the question, will Joe Biden's leadership be enough to turn back the epidemic of asinine, frankly, and, ang and dangerous behavior that, that Donald Trump has unleashed. I mean, I, you know, I start the piece out over at Hartman Report this morning uh, talking about how I was, this was, you know, earlier in the week, I'm literally sitting in my home office, I was working on the daily rant for the next morning, and I hear this guy out in my driveway sh shouting obscenities, you effing C word, uh, you know, for women. Um, all these, actually several female specific obscenities. And I'm like, what's going on? And so I went over to the window and looked down in the driveway and here's this guy uh, screaming obscenities at Louise, at my wife, and giving her the finger with both hands as he's, as he's you know, getting, in, getting into his car and then he squeals out of the driveway and drives off. And I'm like, what happened? And she's like, well, I, I you know, I, we are getting a little bit of work on, done in the house, and she and had had a contractor come over and give her a bid. And when he got to the door, she said, you know, I, I just want to make sure you're vaccinated before I let you into the house. And, he's, and he just exploded in her face and just started screaming obscenities. I mean, she would have been, uh, she told me later, you know, she thought she had told him that on the phone, that, you know, we don't let people who aren't vaccinated into the house. But uh, she said if he had just said, no, I'm not, I'm sorry. She would have said, well, let me compensate you for, you know, the, the hour of your time coming out here and seeing me and pick up your gas expenses or something. It was my, I should have said something, but, but she never had a chance to say anything like that because he started, immediately started calling her the, you know, the, the, these, these obscenity. I'm not going to repeat them. That happened to us this week. 
in Tennessee, a high school student, this has kind of gone viral around the Internet, is speaking at a school board meeting. And he's telling the story of how his grandmother just died of COVID, his maternal grandmother. And he's concerned that if everybody in his school doesn't wear masks, that he might pick it up and carry it home and give it to his paternal, his other grandmother. And a bunch of smirking, unmasked adults start heckling him and shouting him down. This kid in school in Tennessee on JetBlue, another one that's gone viral in the last couple of days. Uh, you know, uh, this is a, a rite of passage now for flight attendants. You know, uh, uh, another drunk mask hole going ballistic because the flight attendant asked him to pull his mask up over his nose. And he's like, oh, my God. In Tacoma, Washington, a, a group of thugs go out looking for a fight with Antifa that they had advertised. Hey, Antifa, come meet us. And they, they, they get there and there's no Antifa. So they go roaming around town with baseball bats and, and, and flagpoles and stuff uh, looking for people to beat up. And apparently some local guy, not Antifa, but just somebody who was just sick and tired of it, uh, shoots one of them in the foot. Well, there, there are some theories that the guy shot himself in the foot. But, I mean, you know, it's like, really? Vigilantes on our street in, in small town, you know, in Tacoma, Washington, in Fort Collins, Colorado. This guy, there, there's the, you know, they've got a beach there and there's these, these they're near Fort Collins. And, and a couple of uh, young women are laying on the beach in their bikinis. And this guy comes up to them and starts ranting at them about how they're showing too much skin. And uh, they should cover themselves up. This is pornographic. And they're like, go away, leave us alone. Don't look if you don't want. And he's, and he's like, no, I, I, I can stand here and harass you. This is America. Uh, poll workers across the country are literally getting over 100 death threats that have been confirmed, you know, where they know who did it. They know that it happened. They know that these were real threats. So far, nobody has been arrested, which is mind boggling. But poll workers are getting threatened. Secretaries of state are getting threatened. School boards are getting death threats. And this is just the past week. So what the hell is going on here? Well, this, this continuous and increasing use of violence and threats of violence, which has become an epidemic, is not because people are upset about the pandemic. This goes back four years. This goes back to the beginning, to, to, to Trump becoming president of the United States. And this is what happens in every country that makes that transition from being a democratic and generally egalitarian and respectful culture into being one that embraces authoritarian uh, fascism, essentially. And it always starts from the top down. It always starts from the leadership. And in this case, these people are imitating Donald Trump. Frankly, I think our best hope is that Joe Biden, with his compassionate, thoughtful, you know, intelligent leadership style, is going to nip this in the bud and America can recover and go back to being America. But, you know, this... This doesn't look good. I mean, down in Texas, you've got the, you know, there's a bunch of Republicans trying to just keep, keep going in that authoritarian, neo-fascist direction. Down in Texas, they, they just passed a law encouraging vigilantism against women. I mean, you know, it, and you look around the world at how this happens. When, when Viktor Orban was rising to power in Hungary, there were mobs that were wandering around Budapest with torches going up to the homes of uh, Roma people, the people that used to be called gypsies. And now it's a that's kind of a slur. But, they, you know, so you know what, what I'm talking about, uh, threatening to burn their houses down in the Philippines. Uh, little Donald Trump Duterte, President Duterte 
Um, it has praised vigilantes. I mean, this is just a couple of weeks ago. Praised vigilantes roaming the streets with clubs and guns looking to beat or kill people, beat up or kill people. He named 150 judges, mayors, lawmakers, police, and military personnel said these people are associated with drugs. He said, please feel free to call us or the police or do it yourself if you have a gun. You have my support. These people were all his political opponents. In Russia, they're attacking gay people, LGBTQ people, as, the, as the leadership of that country ramps up their otherizing language. And, and this is happening across former Soviet states, particularly where advocates for democracy or for gay rights are being uh, you know, beat, beaten or killed. This is what happened when Mussolini came to power in 19, or started rising to power in 1921 in Italy. He had this, this paramilitary, unpaid volunteer para, paramilitary group. They called them the, the Black Shirts. And they would just terrorize people in Germany in 21. The same thing with Hitler, with his Sturmabteilung, the uh, storm unit. The, again, voluntary, unpaid civilian militias. In Brazil right now, they call them militias in Brazil. They, they roam the streets killing and beating people up who are perceived to be the, the political enemies of, of uh, you know, Trump imitator Jair Bolsonaro. And according to reporting in The Intercept and The Guardian, they're being led by Bolsonaro's eldest son, Flavio. In every case around the world and throughout history, regular citizens are first surprised. How come everybody's behaving nuts? Then shocked, then intimidated. And finally, if you don't get that leadership out and get decent leadership in, finally dominated by this emerging authoritarian or neo-fascist movement. And in every case, these everyday actions like traveling on a bus or a train or an airplane or hiring a contractor or just walking through town become a minefield filled with unpredictable eruptions and threats of violence and intimidation. Milton Mayer, the, I, you know, I've quoted him so many times, he, he wrote, uh, they thought they were free. Uh, went to Germany in the 1950s, after uh, early, late 1940s, early 1950s, right after World War II. And he wrote, and they thought they were free, he said, if I and my countrymen ever succumbed to that concatenation of conditions, no constitution, no laws, no police, and certainly no army would be able to protect us from harm. We are witnessing today the symptoms of a culture going through the early stages of the transition from uh, egalitarian and pluralistic democracy to violent oligarchy. And it quite literally starts with average people just randomly exploding and behaving like total asses while political demagogues promote self-styled militias, lawlessness, and vigilantism. This is how it begins. And we ignore or minimize or ridicule these people at our own peril. So just wanted to put that warning down that marker. If you want to read the whole rant with the links to everything that I talked about, it's over, it's over at HartmanReport.com. I am hopeful. Let me just put a punctuation mark on this. I am hopeful and very hopeful that Joe Biden's leadership will get us out of this mess, this wilderness. What say you? Bobby in La Puente, California. Hey, Bobby, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. First of all, I want to say sorry what happened to Louise. What happens to Louise? Assault. Assault with you as well. Oh, with you know, the, the contract. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. And uh, it, it does affect me because I know what it feels like. Not be calling that, but just to be insulted. Anyway, uh, 
we shall overcome. Okay, yeah. my Thank thing you, is college football. You know, I, I'm not a fanatic. You know, I root for UCLA, but I toned down a lot. Too much wasted energy. But what I've seen in the stands, filled, 80,000 capacity. Nothing mentioned about vaccines or anything. Then on the field, they had the Southeastern Conference Commissioner. Looks around. Ain't this wonderful, beautiful? The stands are filled. All he sees, in my opinion, are dollar signs. Dollar signs. Aren't there, aren't they, uh, uh, I I thought that, I mean, I I don't follow sports at all, Bobby, so I very much do not know what I'm talking about here. But Uh, I thought that, like, this started with the NFL and and with the uh, Major League Baseball, that they were, that they were requiring certificates of vaccination to get into the stadiums. Uh, Did I miss, did I read that wrong? Well, the South, well, the South is different. Honest, I have heard uh, Dr. Fayachi, Falachi, I'm sorry to butcher his name. Yeah. You know, yes, uh, saying that, man, he just shook his head. Because you have to have, what you say, a vaccine card. When I had to see my doctor yesterday, I had to present it, but I forgot it. But he gave me a break. But uh-huh. for sure, I'll take it. And uh, no, I, I don't hear anything. Then I hear, look, a couple of people wearing masks. Man, one's his insanity. They maybe had to work the second step come to believe in a power greater than themselves. Yeah. Or to me, you know what I would do, Tom? Sentence them like the guy that assaulted your wife. Kind sentence is to drink ayahuasca. All you, drink it. Yes. Okay, it'll change your mind. I am with you, Bobby. I'm telling you, psychedelics changed my no. life when I was a teenager. But that said, tread yes. carefully. Tread very carefully if you do oh, that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You don't do it. Uh, you do it, you know. Yeah, you you, you, you want to. There are there are that, ways to do it that are legal and that are yes. safe and that are controlled yes. and that uh, have uh, good people uh, guiding them. Uh, but that's kind of a tangent. Uh, back yeah, to the I football mean, stadium. Tactic. Yeah. So your call, Bobby, was to call for large venues to require proof of vaccination. And don't you think we're awful close to that right now? I don't know, Tom. The South, like you say, the South are stubborn. You know, the yeah. South. They, yeah. they they just don't want to bend their ego. Well, they're the rebels of today, really, the rebels, and Nazis as well. Well, yeah, and, and rebels we tend to think of as a good thing, and, and uh, this, is, this is very much not the case. Bobby, Bobby, thanks for the call. Great points made, uh, as always. Johan in Los Angeles. Hey, Johan, what's up? Are you okay with um, the vaccine booster? Or, uh, yes. Are you okay with... Uh, taking the vaccine every six months or 12 months. If that's what it takes to, to protect me from a disease that's going to, you know, uh, that has the potential that about a third of the people who get it end up disabled, essentially, for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Why? Um, many people are new to this. So uh, just asking. Many people yeah, are mutants, you did you say? Uh, no, 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 new, new to this, new. Oh, new to this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, this 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 vaccine, these particularly the mRNA vaccines, it's a it's a new vaccine technology. They're not injecting into you a dead virus or a killed virus or a disabled virus. They're they're injecting into you a piece of RNA we call messenger RNA that causes your body itself to produce the protein that your body then produces the antibodies to. And it's a pretty spiffy technology, and it doesn't have the side effects or the problems that a lot of the older vaccines do. So I'm I'm frankly good with it. I'm very good with it, in fact. 
So thanks a lot for the call, uh, Thomas and Columbus. I'm sorry I haven't gotten to you. We'll get to you later in the week and, and, and other callers as well. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us today. We will be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It does require you, really, all of us. That's why it's called democracy. So get out there, get actor tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 